Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Um, so Genesis chapter 34 is where we are. Uh, we left off at chapter 33 last week, and so we're working our way through Genesis. And uh, chapter 34, you know, uh, sometimes as a pastor you want to have, like have jokes or put slides up that are funny and stuff. This is not a funny chapter at all. In fact, it's a tragic chapter. And uh, it's one of those ones where it's like, you know, I'd almost rather skip over it. But you know what? There's a lesson to be learned even in this chapter because all scripture is inspired by God and it's all profitable for teaching including this chapter so we'll see what the Holy Spirit has to tell us or to speak to our hearts but what I what I kind of came across as I as I was studying this chapter and I'm really praying Lord Lord what's the message in here and I think the message here and I and I gave it a title it's called the peril of passive parenting the peril of passive parenting and we'll talk about that and, and so it's, it's kind of a bummer chapter. But chapter 35 offers hope because chapter 35, well, while chapter 34 is the peril of passive parenting, chapter 35 is the way forward from passive parenting toward active godly leadership. And we'll, we'll, we'll explain that as we get there. So first of all, we want to look at, uh, at chapter 34. Now, you know, the thing about the Bible is... It doesn't sugarcoat anything in scriptures, right? Uh, the Bible shows, uh, you know, we, we're going to read real-life tragedy here, and this is a tragic story that we're going to read here. Uh, the Bible doesn't sugarcoat over events or people. I mean, these are real people. They're living real lives, and uh, they're experiencing real circumstances. And, you know, what gives? it's kind of, for me, it's kind of comforting because, I mean, that's the way we live, right? Our lives aren't sugar-coated. You know, we, we, I'd love, it'd, it'd be great if everything was just perfect, but we know our lives are not perfect. Sin has a, has a way of just messing up things in our lives and complicating things. And so, to me, it's, it's, an, it's an encouraging thing to go through and to, and to realize these are real people that we're studying and reading about. Now, interestingly, which I thought was also interesting, the events recorded in the next chapter all involve Leah's children. Remember, uh, uh, Jacob married uh, Rachel and Leah, and then he had two concubines. And uh, so these all involve Leah's children. And it's like, well, why are they just Leah's children? Well, if you recall, Leah was the wife that was never really supposed to be a wife, right? I mean, Jacob was never intending to marry her, and, and he was tricked into marrying her by Laban. And this was a marriage that never intended to be. And yet the Bible records polygamous marriages. It doesn't condone them, but it records them as a matter of fact. What, that's what occurs. And so um, it's interesting that these are all from one of the polygamous marriages. And so, you know, maybe that's God's way of showing, you know, I'm not going to bless this marriage. And yet God's gracious, and we'll see that as we go through here. Um, so... What's interesting is between chapter 33 and chapter 34, there's an interval, and most people think it's approximately 10 years between the events that we, that we read in 33 and chapter 34. Jacob is now in the promised land. Remember, he was in Padan, Aram up north, and God told him, you know, go back to your country, to your people and stuff. And so he's back in the promised land. Uh, however, at the end of chapter 33, we find out that he settles near the pagan city, of, uh, pagan Canaanite city, excuse me, of Shechem. 
and Dinah, which is the only daughter that's listed. Now, Jacob and, and his wives probably had more than one daughter, but that's the only one that's listed because of the one that because of what occurs in this story here in chapter 34. She's probably, she's the eldest daughter, she's probably roughly around 15 or 16 years old when this event took place in this chapter. And all Jacob's kids, um, except for his last, which isn't born yet, will be born as we get into chapter 35, came to Canaan relatively young. Now there's 12 children that are recorded up to this point from two wives and two concubines or two mistresses. Um, And if you think about it now in our family, I think all of our kids are within a year, year and a half, maybe two years. I don't think they're more than two years apart. And that's kind of normal, right? You have about a year, two years, and then you have another child. Sometimes there's like five years between me and my next sibling. But, you know, typically that's kind of what happens. Well, there's no reason why that would be the case in the, the case of these children. Why? Because they're all different wives. So there, there could have been pregnancies going on at the same time. And what I'm getting at is most of these children are probably really close in age. They're probably really close in age. And so the point in bringing that up is they've all been influenced by the pagan culture of the city of Shechem for about 10 years. And that's the 10 formative years in their childhood. And so now they're teenagers. They've been, they've been spending time, you know, just outside of the city, seeing all the wickedness and everything that's going on. It kind of reminds me of Lot, Lot and his family. So verse 1. <clears throat> now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. What's interesting here is I was looking into Josephus. He's a, a, a Hebrew Uh, Jewish historian, and he said that the Shechemites were holding a festival, and basically Dinah went to go check out the festival. Uh, Well, what's wrong with that picture? Remember I said she's a young girl, right? About 15 or 16. She's single. She's a virgin. Um, Should she be going to a pagan festival in the first place, right? Uh, Should she be going alone? Uh, And more importantly, I guess, should she be even going at all? And she, maybe she's like, but Justin Bieber is so cool. You know, he's going to be there at this thing. Or all my friends are going. How many of you parents have heard that? Oh, I've used it from my parents. All my friends are doing it, you know. Um, well, the question I have to ask, and again, think back to this passive parenting. Or, you know, where's Jacob in this? Where's Jacob? Now, as we get down to verse 5, we're going to discover that Jacob's sons were in the field tending his livestock. So that means that Jacob wasn't in the field. Jacob was most, more than likely at home, right there, where his daughter was. So where was Jacob? You know, the Canaanites, as we know from history, they were, they were famous for being wickedly immoral. And so where was Jacob in all this? What's wrong with this picture? You know, let me go to the next slide there. It would be about the same, in my mind, as letting you dads, letting your 15-year-old daughter go by herself to Mar- Mardi Gras, you know? Could you imagine just like, hey, have fun, you know, the, the, get some beads for me or whatever, you know, and stuff? Uh, it'd be crazy, right? Well, let's give Jacob the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he wasn't aware that she went, all right? Maybe, he, maybe she just snuck out and went to, uh, to go see the, this festival or whatever, um, but the problem is, he still, you know, he still has a level of blame for what's going on here because he must be at home at this point. Leah, uh, Rachel, Bilhah, and Zilpah, they're probably home too. 
And they're probably not even aware. Maybe they're not even aware that she left. And so the problem I see, at best, they're not paying attention to what their kids are doing, at best. At worst, they're being permissive and allowing her to go. But the Bible doesn't tell us that, but it makes you wonder. So verse 2. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. What an unspeakable tragedy. Dinah here is raped by Shechem. I mean, there's no other way to to sugarcoat it. That's what happened. Uh, It's interesting. Matthew Henry, a commentator, he says this, Shechem, the prince of the country, but a slave to his own lusts. And it says here that Shechem loved Dinah and spoke kindly to her. But you've got to understand, that's not agape love, right? Agape love, it's a, that's a love, that's a, that's a selfless love. That's a love that, that, that gives without you know, seeking anything back. Um, if it was agape love, he would have never have violated her. But this is a self-centered, if he can even call it love, it's a self-centered form of love. It's basically, what can I get out of this? What can I get from it? And it's evidenced by how he responds to his father. He says, get me that woman for a wife, making demands on his dad. So we get to verse 5. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. He held his peace. I don't know about you, but I can imagine what I would have done in that situation. I mean, it, it would have been ugly, right? I mean, I would have been, what, what did he, why did he hold his peace? What would have you or I have done in that situation? Well, what did Jacob do? At this point, he didn't do anything. Now, again, maybe he's overcome with grief. I mean, this is a tragedy, probably just, you know, maybe just devastated. I'm sure he was devastated. Maybe he's just so angry, he doesn't know what to do. But whatever the reason, he should have done something. He should have done something. And because of his lack of leadership and because of his passiveness as a parent, his two sons, who are the brothers of Dinah, are going to take matters into their own hands. Now, Jacob is not alone in being a, a, a passive parent in scriptures. There's a few other people that, are, that we, we read about, that we study about, that were passive. And yet they were great men of God. I mean, Moses, or Charlton Heston. I guess that's Charlton Heston. Moses. Well, just, that's Moses, all right? Moses was a great man of God. I mean, he was used by God in an, in, a, in an amazing way. But you know what? There was a point in his life where he neglected the spiritual leadership in his home. It's recorded in Exodus 4, verses 24 to 26. I'm not going to read it to you, but I'm going to give you kind of a synopsis. Before Moses even goes to Pharaoh, God is almost ready to kill Moses. I mean, to kill him, to wipe him out. I mean, he's not even going to have a ministry. Even before he starts his ministry, God is about to kill Moses. It says it right there in Exodus 4. Why is that the case? It's because he failed to take spiritual leadership in his own home. Because of the vacuum of leadership, Zipporah, his wife, circumcises his two sons. That was what he should have done as the leader of his home. He's the one who should have circumcised his sons. But Zipporah, the wife, 
She fills the gap and takes the, takes the lead. She circumcises their two sons. Again, Moses should have done it to himself. And she took on the role of spiritual leader in the home in that instance. But her quick action resulted in God sparing Moses' life. It's an amazing story there. You know, I've seen it over and over and over again. Men abdicating their role of spiritual shepherd in the home. It's tragedy to see. It's frustrating to watch. And what happens usually is if there's a godly wife in the home, she'll fill the gap. She'll do it because the husband's not doing it. And you know the problem with it, it results in spiritual dysfunction. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that a wife is not capable of spiritual leadership. In fact, she's probably, she could very well be a better leader than her husband. But that's not God's design for the marriage. Now, some women, they don't have a choice, right? Uh, maybe they've had a, maybe it's been thrust upon them. Maybe their spouse has died, and they're raising their kids by themselves. Or maybe there's been a divorce. That's probably a more common thing. And, and, and you know, you think about it in a death, I mean, God has allowed it. There's, there's nothing, you know, you, you can't blame a wife in that case for being the spiritual leader. She needs to be because there's nobody else there. And in a divorce, well, if you, you know, you could, I mean, we could argue this different directions, but listen, divorce boils down to hardness of heart and sin. It boils down to that on one or probably both parts of the spouses, right? And in those situations where the husband's gone, the mother in that situation frequently has no choice but to lead. And and there's no condemnation on that. But again, that's not God's ideal for the marriage. It's not God's ideal for the family. But here, Jacob should be leading, but he's not. He's being passive. And because of the vacuum of leadership in his home, his sons are going to take matters into their own hands. And it's going to have disastrous consequences. Here's another man, King David. Man, David was a great leader, right? The Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. But you know what? He wasn't the best parent. As one consequence, and he was one of those that married multiple wives, and God commanded the kings there not to have more than one wife, and yet he did that. And as a result of a polygamous marriage, his son Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar. David finds out about it, and he's angry, as he rightly should be angry, but he didn't do anything else. And as a result of his passiveness, Tamar's brother Absalom takes matters into his own hands, and the results again... Man, it's a disaster. Finally, there's another example. There's a priest of Israel named Eli. I mean, he's got a very powerful position. He's the priest of Israel, and yet he was a passive parent. He had two sons. One was named Hophni, and the other was Phinehas. And they served alongside their dad as priests. But the Bible says that they were wicked. They were, they were wicked beyond belief. And Eli heard about their wickedness, and he verbally rebuked them, but he never removed them from the ministry. He never, he never deposed them or took them down from being priests. And God spoke to uh, Eli through the prophet Samuel. And he said to him, Why do you kick at my sacrifices and my offerings which I have commanded in my dwelling places? And you honor your sons more than me. I mean, that's the main thing. <coughs> Honor your sons more than me. You can go up a couple slides there. Thank you. Um, 
Sadly, that's a mistake that some Christians make, some Christian parents. They, they honor their children above the Lord, their relationship with the Lord, and they become passive in their, in their parenting. Well, in the case of Eli, God takes matters into his own hands, and he removes Eli and his sons from ministry. Let's look at verse 6. Then Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to speak with, uh, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and, and the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamar spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife, and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us, and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it, and acquire possessions for yourself, for yourselves in it. Excuse me. So Hamar here, the father of Shechem, he comes to speak with Jacob, right, father to father, right. But instead, he not only speaks with Jacob, but he speaks with Jacob and his sons, as we see there in verse eight, verse eleven. Then Shechem said to her father uh, and her brothers, "Let me find favor in your eyes." And whatever you say to me, I will give it. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me. But give the young woman as a wife. Verse 12. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me. But give the young woman as a wife. Verse 13. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamar his father, and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. Now I have to ask this question. Was Jacob present? Scriptures doesn't really tell us. Was Jacob present when they were deceiving Hamar and Shechem? If that's the situation, it's it's, it's that much more worse, right? Because in that case, he's not even strong enough to stop them from deceiving Hamar and Shechem. But again, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. So let's give Jacob the benefit of the doubt and say that he's not present. And it's the sons that are deceiving Shechem by themselves, and he's not even aware of that. In that case, he's still to blame. He still shoulders some of the blame. Why? Because he didn't handle the situation himself as a father. And, you know, I have to believe... I mean, because we talked about it last week, Jacob wrestled with the Lord, right? He surrendered his heart to the Lord. And uh, I have to believe that he's not part of the deception. I have to believe that he's probably not aware of what's going on. But, you know, unfortunately, his children grew up in a home filled with deception, especially before Jacob left Padan Aram. And unfortunately, you know, we can preach to our kids over and over again, but kids learn what they live. They learn, they learn by your example how you live your lives. You could say one thing, but they, if they watch you being a hypocrite, it, it's, it's obvious to them. That's what sticks with them. Verse 14. And they said to him, <clears throat> We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition we will consent to you. If you become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, 
Then we will take our daughter and be gone. Verse 18, And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. Another translation says that Shechem was highly respected. So, you know, as far as being honorable, I mean, after all, he raped Dinah, right? But, and I think what, what another translation is, is trying to get across is that he was influential. He was influential. And it seems that although he did a despicable thing, if you think about it, in, in, that, in their culture, it was, an accepted pros- it was an accepted practice in the Canaanite culture. And so he sees no wrong in what he did. He sees, you know, sometimes we look at Christians or non-believers and we get so frustrated. It's like, why are they doing that sin? You've got to remember, they don't know anything better. Or maybe they do, but their hearts, are, their hearts are so wicked, they can't help from sinning. And sometimes we expect sinners to act like Christians. Well, they're not. They're, they're, they're unbelievers. They need to be saved. They need to be transformed by the Lord. And so here... Shechem sees, probably sees no wrong in what he did, and he's willing to do whatever is demanded of him in order to marry Dinah. Verse 20. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for indeed the land is large enough for them. Uh, let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition we, will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to, dwell, uh, consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. These guys were salesmen. I mean, they were influential. They, they talked them into being circumcised. That's, that's an amazing thing. Uh, there seems to be two factors here in their decision for doing it. First of all, Shechem is respected. And so people seem to trust his advice, as we see here in Scripture. But also, there's this other aspect, and Hamor kind of brings it out. The idea, remember, Jacob is very, very wealthy. He's got massive wealth, and so the idea of acquiring Jacob's massive wealth through intermarriage, it's very appealing to the men of the city. It's like, you know what, pretty soon it'll be, you know, there'll be family, and then we'll, we'll start getting some of their livestock and their wealth and stuff. Verse 25. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, and their donkeys what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my whole household and I. But they said, 
should he treat our sister like a harlot? Amazing story. As the men of the city are incapacitated and they're in the middle of recovering, Dinah's two brothers, <laughs> Levi and Simeon, they go through the city killing all the men, including Shechem and Hamor. And they take Dinah from Shechem's house. And the other sons of Jacob, they come and they plunder the city. But they don't just do that. They also take the women and the children as captives. And the Bible doesn't tell us, but presumably they're going to be servants to the house of Jacob the rest of their lives. You know, there's a reason why God tells us in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And then in verse 20, it says, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. And then finally, in verse 21 of chapter 12, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. They were overcome by evil. And they responded in a wicked way, in a sinful way. James writes in chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, he says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Listen, if you have a problem controlling your wrath, and I was talking to someone who, it's become obvious, someone that I know that it's become obvious that they have, no, no one here, by the way, that they have a problem controlling their wrath. And you know, they, uh, I've got anger issues. That's their excuse. I just got anger issues. Man, I tell you, watch out for people like that. And if you're a person that has anger issues, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. Now listen, Jacob doesn't really address the issue here except to rebuke them because now now he's odious in the sight of all the people around him. He's a prime target for retribution. So even here, Jacob really doesn't do much. However, however, at the end of his life, when Jacob pronounces his blessings on his 12 sons, Simeon and Levi are going to be disqualified from blessings. They'll, they'll get a blessing, but it's going to be different. In chapter 49 of Genesis, and we haven't got there yet in our studies, but uh, maybe next week. No, we don't think that far. <laughs> but here's the, here's the, the, the it's a prophecy, and, and it's also a blessing in, in a sense, as I'll explain, um, to the children of, of Jacob in Genesis chapter 49. In verse 5, he addresses Simeon and Levi. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter into their counsel. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. I mean, it's not, it doesn't sound like a real good blessing, right? Uh, you're going to be scattered in Israel. And you know what? That happened. Both tribes will end up being scattered in Israel. Now, the tribe of Levi, they were scattered, but it was in a good sense because they were the Levitical priests, right? And so God spread them out and gave them cities. They didn't get, they didn't get a tribal like a territory. They got cities throughout the land of Israel because they were ministering to the, to the Lord in the di different places as priests for the people. Why, did it, why does it end up being in a good sense? Well, I think it goes back to when uh, the tribe, or when Levi, the, the tribe of Levi, um, that they stood with Moses 
Remember back in, uh, we won't get there yet in Exodus, of course, but um, the worshipers, you know, Moses went up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And while he was up there, they, uh, they talked Aaron into making a golden calf. They, wanted, they said, here's your calf, and worship them. And, and uh, Moses came down, and, and uh, he basically drew a line in the sand, so to speak, and said, all those that are calf worshipers stand over there. All those that are for the Lord come over here. And, and, and the tribe of Levi was the only tribe that went over and stood next to Moses. And Moses said, guys, strap on your swords. And they, they, they wiped out a lot, of, a lot of people. So I think because they took a stand for righteousness, God blessed them. You know, sometimes for you and I, it's tough to take a stand for righteousness, especially in our culture. But God will bless you if you do. Well, the tribe of Simeon, they too were spread throughout uh, Israel. They were scattered, and, and it wasn't necessary. I don't think it was in a good sense. In fact, it happened in the time of King David. Their cities were absorbed into the tribe of Judah. You might say, well, oh, that's, the, that's the end of them. Well, you know, it's not. God's a gracious God. It's, it's, it's interesting when you get to Revelation chapter 7, you read about the 144,000 Jews uh, during the tribulation. In verse 7, by God's grace, the tribe of, Lib- of Simeon is once more listed among the other tribes of Israel. We serve a gracious God. Proverbs 29.22 says, An angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. You know, maybe you're a person here that has a problem controlling your temper. Maybe you have outbursts of wrath and you just, you know, you're explosive. Uh, What do you do if you're a person that can't control your anger? I don't want to just talk about it and not leave you with an opportunity. Like, what can I do? That, That describes me. I'm glad you asked. The only way to overcome that is to be filled with the Holy Spirit to walk in the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Because I think that's what anger is. It's it's a lack of self-control. Verse 24 says, And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So there is a way to not, you know, not uh, be a wrathful person. There is a way, and that's by walking in the Spirit, by being filled with the Holy Spirit, not give, being given over to your flesh. Well, we get to chapter 30, and that was a bummer chapter, wasn't it? Tough. Well, we get to chapter 35. And uh, so, you know, passive parenting. You know, you can't really blame... I mean, okay, Shechem bears the responsibility for, for the rape, okay? There's no doubt about it. He, he was, I mean, it's total sin, wickedness, and everything. And you can't say, well, it's all Jacob's fault. N- no, it wasn't all Jacob's fault. Shechem was, you know, should have never done that in the first place. But Jacob does bear some responsibility for being a passive <laughs> parent, as I see it in Scripture here. So what's God's solution to Jacob's problem? Because Jacob has a problem. Here's the answer. Verse 1, then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. So what's God's solution to Jacob's problem? Return to Bethel, the place where you first met me. Make an altar there and dwell there. You know, Jacob had no business dwelling right in view of Shechem. He had dwelled there, but he had dwelled there too long. 
And, you know, he was, he had a relationship with God at that point. I mean, I believe he was transformed at that point after wrestling with an angel and all that. But, you know, when you read, he never built any altars there. So he had a relationship with God, and yet he parked himself so close to a pagan city. And, you know, so many Christian parents and Christians in general, they do the same thing. We're followers of Christ, and yet we're so closely aligned to the world and the world's values. And it's a problem. Verse 2. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way in which I have gone. Man, isn't that refreshing? Finally, Jacob is taking a stand as a spiritual leader in his home. I want to encourage you, it's never too late to take a stand as a spiritual leader in your home, dads. It's never too late, mom, to take a spiritual lead in your home. And I don't, you know, we talked about that earlier. But it's never too late to take a stand for righteousness in your home. Idolatry had been an issue ever since Jacob had left Padan Aram. Remember, Rachel had stolen her father's household idols and, uh, and brought them with them. And, you know, what's interesting to me, God didn't have to spell it out to Jacob. God didn't have to say, okay, first of all, get rid of your idols, then come to Bethel. No, God says, come to Bethel. Go to that place where, where I met with you before. And it was Jacob who told his children and his household, hey, we've got to get rid of the idols. We've got to get rid of everything that's polluting us. He knew that his family had been in a place of compromise for years. And so he commands his family to put away all the foreign gods among them and to purify themselves and to put on clean garments. You know, and I got this weird picture in my mind, but, you know, I mean, you know, I go to my closet this morning and uh, I'm like, okay, what pants am I going to wear today? And what pair of shirt, what shirt matches? Well, I don't think this matches, but it's like, you know, Usually my wife has to, like, I wouldn't wear that, I'd change. But, you know, we have so many choices of clothing. And in those days, they didn't have multiple changes of garments. So if you think about it, it's quite possible Levi and Simeon could have blood-stained clothes on, walking around with just, you know, from all the slaughter that they did. And so uh, literally, change your clothes. We're going to uh, Bethel. But, you know, it's also symbolic. It's symbolic of having a change of heart. In character. Verse 4. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shekel. Now, apparently, earrings, because I'm, I'm looking around, you women have earrings on? No. <laughs> apparently, ear- earrings were not just jewelry back then, they were tied to worship of pagan deities of some sort. Uh, and so God tells them, or I mean Jacob tells them, to remove all the foreign gods and the earrings, anything that is associated with idolatry. And then he tells them, then, he, then they gather it all and he buries them under a tree. Why did he bury the idols? Well, for one thing, it's once it's out of, you know, it's, it's away, you, you're not going to get them. But in a sense, burying their idols is a picture of believer's baptism, which is a picture of, of what happens when a person is born again. 
Look what it says in Romans 6, 4. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Baptism doesn't save you, obviously, but it's, a, it's symbolic of the change that's taken place in your heart. You know, the old idol worship me, worshiping me, the sinfully carnal me, and I'm buried with Christ in baptism. And I'm raised up in newness of life. Man, I'm no longer a slave to those sins. Verse 5. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them. And they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. I hear God, you know, Jacob, you know, I mean, face it, they deserved to get, you know, have retribution, right? Because of what they did. Although you could argue, you know, you could argue, well, they, you know, there's a rapist and we took him out and all that. But did they have to take out everybody? Okay, but they did. And so uh, Jacob is, rightly so, made odious to the peoples around them. And so quite possibly the other nations would want to attack him. But God in his grace, God in his mercy, instilled fear in the hearts of all the nations around them and protected, God, uh, protected Jacob and his family. Verse 6. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. And 30 years ago, Jacob came to this very same spot, Bethel. But he was alone, right? And he was only carrying his staff. It was by himself. Here God, God met with him as a younger man. And that was the start of his relationship with God. God had changed Jacob's life. And he's now 30 years older. And he's no longer alone, right? He's got at least 12 children at this point, possibly more if you include daughters that aren't listed in Scripture. He's got two wives, two concubines, multiple servants, all kinds of livestock. He's no longer alone. And he has finally brought all of them to that place where he met the Lord God so that they could meet God as well. I I think that's just a beautiful picture of bringing your loved ones to the altar of God where God can alter their lives like he altered your life. It's an important thing for parents to to do. Verse 8, Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alon Bakuth. Deborah, we find out here, was Rebekah's nurse. So evidently Jacob had been back to see Isaac at some point after coming back into Canaan, maybe just on a short visit or whatever. And Deborah was Rebekah's nurse, and Deborah evidently had outlived Rebekah because Rebekah had died by this point. And so Jacob probably took this, this matronly woman, this, this nurse that he knew all his life, took her with him to visit, I mean, took her to stay with them. And she was highly respected and loved, obviously, because when she died, they buried her beneath the tree, and they called it the terebinth, uh, um, Elan Bakuth, which means the terebinth or the oak of weeping. So she had a, a tremendous impact on their lives. What's interesting to me is, you know, Jacob's finally doing the right thing. He's finally seeking the Lord. He's, 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 he's leading his family as a godly man, a godly father should do. But even when our lives are back on track on the Lord, with the Lord, it doesn't mean that we're going to be free of pain and hardships. It doesn't mean your life's going to be a bed of roses now. Jacob is going to have some more valleys to walk through in his life, even though he's now a transformed man. 
Verse 9. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. You guys know Jacob's name, right? Your name is Jacob, heel catcher, supplanter. We would say manipulator, con artist, self-made man. That's who you are, Jacob, but your name is no longer going to be called Jacob anymore. But Israel shall be your name, ruled by God. You know, you and I, I don't know what your name was before you came to faith in the Lord. Maybe it was hustler, or maybe it was, you know, liar, or cheat, or, or you know, whatever. Whatever your name was. But you have a new name too, right? We're called little Christs. We're called Christians. Back in the day of the early church, that was a derogatory term. Oh, little Christ. Man, I probably wear that now. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. You have a new name and a new character. Verse 11. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you. And to your descendants after you, I give this land. Verse 13, then God went up from him in that place where he talked with him. Um, I'm going to stop right there for a moment. Notice, as Jacob has returned to Canaan, right? He's finally, he's, he's listened to the Lord. He, he heard the Lord in Padanaram tell him, go, to, go back to your country. He's come back. He spent 10 years, of course, by Shechem. But now he has finally come back to Bethel. He's led his family uh, to get rid of all their idols. So he's, he's leading his family now. And now he's in a place to be in communion with God and to receive God's blessing on his life. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life where I felt kind of distant from the Lord. Has that ever occurred to you? Maybe it's just me, you know. But sometimes I feel distant from the Lord in my relationship. Well, I can tell you one thing. It's not the Lord. The Lord's not the problem. It's me or it's you. We are the problem. We've moved away from him. It's either through compromise or sin or complacency. Well, what do you do? Well, take an inventory of your heart. See, Jacob said, hey, I want you to go through and I want you to find all the idols. Anything that, that's, that, that we're worshiping that, that affects our relationship with God, anything that's not, you know, it, it, it's taking away from our relationship with God, that's what an idol is. Let's get it all. We're going to get rid of it. We're going to clean house, folks. So what do you and I do? We do the same thing. We take an inventory of our heart. Pray. Ask the Lord, Lord, is there any areas of sin in my life? Are there any idols in my life? You know, it was really fascinating to me. I, you know, I've seen the movies like Indiana Jones and different stuff and, you know, the old movies in the 60s of, you know, the, like, well, different, I don't know, certain names, but different movies. The idol was always like this big thing, right? This big monstrous statue or, you know, at least this big or something like that. When we went to Israel one year, it was the only time we've gone, but when we went to Israel, we went to this one museum and they had Canaanite idols there. And it blew me away when I saw them because the idols, they, were, they fit right into the palm of a hand. They were that small. And I always had a picture of this big idol, but they were that small. You know, think about the earrings. I mean, you don't, you don't get much smaller than earrings, right? Especially if it's a little stone or something. See, idols can be very small. 
And in our lives, idols can be very small. It's just a little compromise. It's just a little thing that we allow in our home. It's not a big deal. Well, it's still an idol. It's still an idol, and it's still affecting your relationship with the Lord. And so that's what we need to do. We need to take an inventory and pray. Lord, reveal to me if there's anything that, that is hindering my relationship with you. You know what? Lord will answer that prayer because he loves to answer those kind of prayers. He'll reveal them to you. And then what do you do? You repent of them. You bury them. How do you bury them? By reckoning yourself dead to those sins but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's no longer me. And, and so... This is what Jacob does, and the Lord blesses Jacob. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. And God wasn't joking. God wasn't just like, you know, yeah, it might happen. No, listen. When Abraham was given the promise, right, he had one son, the son of the promise, Isaac. Isaac had one son of the promise. Now, they had two sons, but Isaac uh, was the son of Abraham's promise. Jacob was the son of Isaac's promise. Jacob already, at this point, has 11 sons and a daughter. And in a few chapters further down the road here, he's going to go down to Egypt to meet Joseph, one of his sons, and there'll be 70 in his family by that point. 210 years later, when the children of Israel finally come out of Egypt, they're going to be 1,800,000 descendants strong. Talk about being multiplying and being fruitful. God's not joking and blessing people. Man, what a blessing. And so God says, you're going to be fruitful and multiply. When God says that, man, stand back. It's going to happen. And then God reaffirms the land covenant with Jacob. And I love that, man. The land of Israel, this belongs to Israel, guys it's to this day it's god hasn't given up his land covenant with abraham with the children of israel it's his land it's their land he's given it to them and then verse 13 it says god went up from that place verse 14 so jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him a pillar of stone and he poured a drink offering on it and he poured oil on it and Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. Thirty years ago, when the Lord first appeared to Jacob at this very place, you recall, he had set up a stone, right? He had a, a, I, I don't know why it was a pillow or how he could even think it was a pillow, but he had a rock as a pillow or a stone as a pillow. And after he, the Lord appears to them there, him when he's alone there in Canaan uh, or <coughs> Bethel, he takes that stone and he sets it up and he, it's a memorial to the Lord. I'm going I'm to remember this place. And he makes a vow to the Lord. And it, that was 30 years ago. And so he comes back to that place. You wonder, was that stone there? Maybe it fell down from weather. Maybe some, uh, some Canaanite juvenile delinquents vandalized it, kicked it over. You know, that's what delinquents do, you know. Um, whatever the case is, he renews his commitment to the Lord once more. He sets up a new stone, or maybe it's the same one. He pours a drink offering on it and oil on it. What is that? That's an act of worship. It's symbolic of his gratitude for God keeping his promises, and it's also his devotion to the Lord. The drink offering, that's a fascinating thing that shows up throughout Scripture. What was the drink offering? The drink offering was literally a glass of wine, and, and you'd have this, or a, a cup of wine, and, and you'd have this, you know, the altar. You'd take this glass of wine, or a cup of wine, you would pour it out completely till it was nothing left. You didn't drink anything. You poured it all out on the altar. It was just consumed on the altar. In other words, nothing is held back. 
It's a picture of complete devotion. Paul referred to himself as a drink offering to the Lord. Let me ask you this morning, are you a drink offering? Are you completely devoted to the Lord this morning? You can be. Verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. I'm going to stop right there, too. Jacob, again, he's renewed his commitment to the Lord. He's rid his house of household idolatry. He's back in the promised land. Uh, The Lord's blessed him. And now tragedy uh, strikes once more. This time, his wife, Rachel, she dies giving birth to her son. And as she's dying, she gives her son a name, Ben-Oni, which means son of sorrow. And Jacob, man, he's a merciful dad. He's like, he's like man, I, I don't want my son carrying that burden. I'm, I'm the son of sorrow. You know, I, I was born, my mom died and I was born. He doesn't want him carrying, carrying that the rest of his life. So instead, he names him Benjamin, son of my right hand. And so in verse 21, it says, Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. Verse 22, And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. (laughs) You know, sometimes a parent does everything they can to lead their children spiritually. You do everything you can. You equip them. You prepare them for godly living. And yet the young man or the young woman still chooses to sin. That's hard as a parent. But you know what? They're free moral agents. They're ultimately responsible for themselves too. You're responsible as you're raising them. But there comes a point where they're responsible for the choices that they make. And Reuben here, man, Jacob's, Jacob's a transformed person, I believe, at this point. He's now leading his family, and yet his eldest son Reuben has sex with Bilhah, Jacob's concubine. And it says there, Israel heard about it. What did, what did he do? Well, he'll disqualify Reuben from receiving the blessing of the firstborn. It's also in Genesis 49. We won't go to that to look at it, but he'll, he'll, he's disqualified because he was the firstborn. He should have got that double blessing. It's going to go to Joseph. It's going to go to Joseph. You know, sexual immorality has ruined many a person, and it's torn apart marriages. It's disqualified pastors from ministry. I've seen it too many times. It's stolen the most beautiful gift a husband and wife can give to each other on their wedding night, man, their virginity. A beautiful gift. It steals that. It can inflict sexually transmitted diseases on people. And if none of those are bad enough, man, it harms your relationship with the Lord. It creates a distance between you and him. Verse 23. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. 
The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham, Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, so Isaac breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now the story, Jacob's going to be continuing, and the story of Jacob, we're going to read a little bit more about Jacob next week. We'll be looking at the family line of Esau, and then he kind of disappears from view as far as history. His, his family, his descendants, man, they, they figure prominently in throughout the, the, the Bible. We'll, we'll look at that next week. Um, and not in a good way either. But the story, even though Jacob's going to be mentioned in the next couple of chapters, the story really is going to, now it's going to focus on J, uh, Joseph his son, because God has a special plan for Joseph's life, and I'm excited to look at that in the next few weeks. Um, Why don't the worship team come on up? You know, as we got to the end of this chapter, um, I I don't know, you know, sometimes I I preach a message, and I'm trying to get certain points across, and it's funny, someone will come up to me and go, man, the Lord really spoke to me, and, 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 and he said this, and I'm like... Did I even say that? It's amazing what the Holy Spirit will do. And I don't know if the whole... I, I pray that... In fact, I prayed this morning that the Holy Spirit was speaking to each one of you this morning. And maybe the Lord has. Maybe, maybe he's touching your heart. Um, as we, we're going to worship the Lord, we're going to reflect on, on that, and we're going to respond to the Lord. But as we get to the end of the, of the, the set of worship now, um, there's going to be an opportunity for you to go in the back. And if you need prayer, man, let this be your Bethel. Let this be your place where you go back to your relationship with the Lord, where you, you say, you know, I'm done with the idols. I'm done with all that. I, I want to recommit myself to the Lord. We're going to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. Maybe you don't even have a relationship with Jesus. You know, the Lord Jesus, he died on the cross for your sins. You don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. He's, he died to pay the penalty that you would have had to have paid, but you couldn't even have paid it. But he died and took that, he took our sin upon the cross he died in our place. But the Bible says three days later he rose again. And now he offers forgiveness. And he can come into your heart and be the Lord of your life. And you can enter into that relationship with the Lord. You don't have to, you don't have to leave here being the person that you came here this morning. You can be changed. But it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit coming to him in prayer. So that's why we offer prayer at the end of the service. So I want to encourage you for that. Um, so, thanks. Let's, let's pray before we... And you guys, why don't you stand up? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, we thank you. Uh, Lord, this wasn't an easy chapter, to, chapter 34 to teach, but it's there and it's there for a reason. And Lord, I pray that, Lord, that we might find application in our own lives, Lord. Lord, maybe, maybe anger is not an issue for us. Maybe we're not passive. But, Lord, maybe we've allowed idolatry to creep into our homes. Maybe we've been camped too close to the world and its values for so long, and it's affected our family, it's affected our children. Lord, as parents, and I'm speaking for the parents here, Lord, we need to get our hearts right with you first before we can even expect a change in our children. And so, Lord, I pray that we as adults here 
would have our hearts right with you this morning. And Lord, I do pray for all the children here, Lord. I, this culture, Lord, it, it's like we're, we're right next to Shechem, Lord, and we're seeing it more and more every day. Lord, protect our children, Lord. Guard them, Lord. Let us be aware of what they're doing in their lives. Let us be aware of what they're, what they're looking at on their computers or their cell phones, Lord. Let us pay attention and not be like Joseph, uh, Jacob, who, who either he wasn't aware or he was too permissive to allow and, and tragedy struck. Lord, let not that be the story of our families, Lord. And if it has, Lord, if it's, it's already happened in our families, Lord, Lord, I thank you that you're a merciful God. Thank you that you're gracious. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.